you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. And we will be picking it up in verses 7 to 12. You notice we have been mostly singing about the Lord Jesus Christ, the importance of Jesus, the prominence of Jesus this morning. And in Mark's gospel, what happens paragraph by paragraph is we're just told uh, one more story about Jesus after the next. Some of the stories are long enough that they're broken into paragraphs, but where we are now, it's very much largely just one story, incident, about Jesus after the next. Because he is that central to things, according to the New Testament. He's that important. He's the kind of person that you sing worship songs about. be completely inappropriate to sing worship songs about any other particular human being. It's unique in that sense. And so we come this morning to yet another indication of just how important Jesus is and how important it is that we know it that we become, as Don already mentioned earlier, we are becoming disciples. Well, we're becoming disciples of Jesus. And the central way that you do that is know who he is and understand something of the implications of who he is. So we'll come at those two things yet again this morning. Let's stand together. Mark 3, verses 7 to 12. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do give you thanks and we call out in your name. And we ask that you would make yourselves, make yourself known among the peoples. That you would make yourself known by means of your deeds among the peoples. That we would know you, therefore, as the creator of the universe. That we would know you as the everlasting king. That we would know you as the gracious father who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. And that we would know such things about you and such things about your son such that as this morning 
that we would sing to you, that we would make melody in our hearts to you, that we would meditate on all of your wonders, the wonder of your presence with us in a modest room like this, the wonder of your knowledge of us. For you know everything we've done, everywhere we've been, everywhere we're headed. You know exactly how many days we will live and how many times our hearts will yet beat. You are marvelous in your knowledge, marvelous as to your presence. And so we gather and praise you in the name of your holiness. Lord, enable our hearts to rejoice as those who seek you, who seek you in your strength and seek your face continually. And Lord, we are reminded of many in our own congregation who, like the people in our story, they're in trouble. They're in trouble. They're in trouble in their health, which is what brought all these people after Jesus. Uh, They call out after Jesus. They come to find Jesus because they're sick, they're dying, they're in great trouble. And Lord, we have people in our own midst who are sick and who are dying and physically speaking are in great trouble. And they look to you and we look to you along with them and pray alongside them for healing, if that is what you will do, for strength in the face of death, if that is what you will do. For you are capable of anything. You are a wonder. And we seek you at all times, but we are especially prone to seek you when we know we are in trouble. And it's a gracious thing for you to allow us to know when we're in trouble. And so, Lord, we gather together to remember some of your wonders which you have done through the Lord Jesus Christ, your miracles, the judgments of your mouth, We are your people, the children of Abraham through Jesus Christ. Lord, may we represent you here as your people represent you all around the world in this day. Lord, we are gathered to remind ourselves that you have promised to forgive all of the sins of all of the people who seek you in Jesus. That's your covenant promise to us. May you enable us to understand it, to know it, to claim it. We thank you, Lord, for promises. We thank you for your presence. We ask now, as John already mentioned, that your Holy Spirit would take your words and the songs that we have sung And speak to our hearts and draw us close to you through your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Be seated. As we've noted repeatedly, Mark's gospel, the gospels as a whole, are all about repeatedly answering handful of questions. Who is Jesus? How powerful is Jesus? How capable is Jesus? How caring is Jesus? How loving is Jesus? Uh, 
That's what Mark's gospel is all about. Paragraph by paragraph, you find out that Jesus is central to the story. He's central to everything. And there are some people who, by the grace of God, have figured that out. And we, and we meet them uh, in this paragraph in verses 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee, in the north, Judea in the south, Jerusalem, Idumea even further south, beyond the Jordan to the east, and around Tyre and Sidon to the west and the north. And a great crowd heard all that he was doing. And they came to him. Um, For people in a certain set of circumstances, Jesus is a huge draw because of the stories being told about people who got next to him and were healed. And so, if you're in a certain set of circumstances, all you can think about is how wonderful it would be to be able to be healed. And so, if you can find that, if you can get to that, you're going to get there. And that's what's going on in Mark 3. 7 to 12, they are, they are getting there. A little later in this gospel, we'll meet a, a father of a son who we would certainly label mentally ill. They label him mentally ill and demonically oppressed, more or less, in this story in Mark 8. And here's what we read. Someone in the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able And Jesus said, O faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and the spirit saw him, and immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. In other words, from the time he was a little boy. This has been happening for years. This is how my son's been for years. He said he casts him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything. Have compassion on us and help us. You can see this father is in a desperate situation. And that desperation has put him among those seeking out Jesus. And he comes with this Question, if you can help us, can you help us? If you can help us. And Jesus gives him a bold response. Uh, Jesus says, if I can. If I can.
All things are possible to the one who believes. If I can. Did you ask if I can? There's no question about that. I can. That's the sense of it. Jesus can do, Jesus can do anything. Anything. Now that's the way Jesus himself thinks about God. Mark 14, 36. This time it's Jesus praying, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. All things are possible to you. That's how Jesus lives in relation to his Father. Mark's trying to get us to live in that same way in relation to the Father and the Son, to live in a realm where we are confident that is true. All things are possible to you. You don't necessarily know what Jesus is going to do. But you can be utterly confident in what he can do. You don't necessarily know what God is going to do. You don't know that. But you're to be absolutely confident in what he can do. Completely firm on that. Um, And the only people who benefit from that, again, according to the story, according to the New Testament more generally, are those who understand themselves to have a desperate need of Jesus, a desperate need of God through Christ. That's, you want to be sure, you're in that group. Those who seek Jesus because you sense a desperate need of him. State our thesis for this morning this way. You are blessed if you know you need Jesus. This little paragraph, we read about a group of people that are largely blessed. How do you know they're blessed? Because they know they need Jesus and they're looking for him and they're seeking him out. And they are going a distance to find him And they plan to pay careful attention to him when they get there. And they're hoping, of course, to be physically healed. That's what they want. That's the story that they've heard that most interests them. And they're probably going to find out a little bit more when they get there. And this story certainly implies that Jesus forces that extra knowledge upon them. We'll come at this from three angles this morning. Number one. People who know they are in trouble are the ones most likely to seek Jesus. People who know that they are in trouble are those most likely to seek Jesus. Uh, Those of you who come to Sunday night know that more Sunday nights than not, uh, Pastor Don opens Sunday night with a review. Uh, so you review several weeks back and sort of tie it all together and then move into the present text. Uh, we don't do that all that often, though we're going to do this morning. Uh, we're going to do it this morning, and we're going to go quite a ways back in, in our review. Um, if you're reading Mark over and over and over and over again, what you'd notice here in verses 7 to 12 is that it's basically a repeat of the last paragraph in Mark chapter 1. And then there's a parenthesis in between. So at the end of Mark chapter 1, everybody's seeking after Jesus and trying to find him and and get to him. And then there's this section of stories about the Pharisees who are opposing Jesus. One after the next, one after the next, all the way from chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6, and then, bang, verses 7 to 12, you're back to the same situation that closed chapter 1. 
It's the balanced view of of Jesus. There's a group very excited about him, seeking out for him. There's a group who can't stand him. And there's everything in between uh, those two things. But in both cases, the end of Mark chapter 1 and here in 3, 7 to 12, what's going on is people are really, really interested in Jesus because two-thirds of the way through verse 8, Mark 3, 8, they heard all that he was doing. And the thing that they're really interested in is that he's healing people. And they're sick, or they have sick people in their family. And they're getting those people to Jesus, if they possibly can, because they heard what he was doing. Later on in the gospel, we'll meet of a woman who comes up and touches Jesus because she's been suffering with her malady for 12 years. Spent all of her money on doctors trying to heal the thing and no one could help her. And that's why she is seeking Jesus. And the problem then suddenly in her case is gone. That's a story to tell. And a woman like that told that story. And you hear that story? I remember my brother telling me when his son was in the final stages of dying of cancer. He said, if you talk to somebody who is absolutely sure that they would be way too smart to run to Mexico looking for shark cartilage, you're probably talking to somebody who's never had a son or a daughter or been themselves in the late stages of cancer. Because when you're there, you're open to options that you hear about. Many of them not very promising, but you're open because you're in trouble and you know it. And you're in so much trouble that you've got nothing to lose. And you hear a story like this woman's? Years and years, and then Jesus. Gone. You're interested. You're interested. Because these people, they know they're in trouble. All kinds of people heard that story. They're healthy, wealthy, and wise. Yeah, okay, yeah, right. Big deal. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, I've heard that all before. I've heard that all before. I've heard that all before. Sounds pretty irrelevant to them. Why? Because everything's fine for them right now. They're not worried about it. They're doing fine. They're doing fine. Things are going along. Asaph in Psalm 73 camps on this issue in the middle of Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is famous for this. The the issue in Psalm 73 is godly people noticing that they have the same amount of trouble as everybody else, if not worse, and that doesn't seem to make sense. Why would that be like that? Um, And so Psalm 73, picking it up, In 
verse 11, with them quoting the taunts of the godless. Here's what the godless are saying to them. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And then he editorializes, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. In vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. Do you get that? In the midst of this, I don't get it, I don't get it, I don't get it, I don't get it. What is God doing? I don't get it. And you don't. And you won't. Verse 17, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. They are destroyed in a moment. They're swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. They're going along, everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine, it's over. Would have been nice maybe to be warned. Yes. God says to the psalmist, yes. It would be nice to know that you're in desperate need of God before it's too late. So when you see and you think, oh, look how God is blessing the wicked. The psalmist sees, that's not blessing. No, No, it's not. No, it's not. Many of you remember 31 years ago. 31 years ago, there was probably one of the most popular basketball players who have ever played the game because of his personality and his giftedness. uh, Irvin Magic Johnson. And in 1991... Uh, Irvin Magic Johnson found out that he had tested positive for HIV uh, and, and therefore, so as not to, you know, have contact with another player uh, in such a way as to mix their blood possibly and infect somebody else, he announced his retirement. He was not sick. Uh, in other words, he didn't have any symptoms of the disease, but he, he tested positive. It was in his bloodstream, and, uh, and he went uh, from being a very popular uh, basketball player to the most prominent and important uh, advocate for the AIDS crisis of anybody in America, and, and as part of that, his retirement um, uh, for infidelity, by the way. I mean, he, he was in extramarital affairs where he got HIV, and he confessed that, and he confessed that to his wife, and all that was out in the, the open at the time. But, the, but the, the Los Angeles Coliseum, I mean, they, they held a night. Some of you remember it. I watched it on television. It was a nationally televised event, the retirement of Irvin Magic Johnson. I don't remember that much about it, that hour or whatever it was, except this. This is the piece that I remember because it was so stunning under the circumstances. Former teammate of his, Wilt Chamberlain, 
Wilt Chamberlain walks into the Colosseum that night as one of the honored guests, and of course the big spotlight hits him, and he's got one woman on each arm. One woman on each arm. The next year, Wilt Chamberlain will publish his autobiography, and and he'll tell the world, yeah, yeah, I think I had sexual relations with about 20,000 women. 20,000. And there he was, his high school letterman's jacket, fashion model on each arm. Under these circumstances, it was, it was an incredible moment of American stupidity. But there he was, in the spotlight. Wilt Chamberlain, 55 years old that night. 55 years old. Wilt Chamberlain did not believe he had a, he didn't have a, a problem in the world. His autobiography, The View from Above. Wilt, View from Above. Metaphor for his height and for his accomplishments. The view from Above. What a guy. Just a few years, his heart would fail. Pretty rapidly. Big guy like that. Congestive heart failure, pretty quick. Complication due to a really minor procedure, and he's gone. Psalm 73. It's not blessed to be like that. That is not a blessing. Um, It's a good thing to know that you're in trouble and need divine help. Hope you know it. Hope you have known it. Hope you know it now. Live that out. Secondly, people coming to Jesus are taught that they need spiritual help more desperately than they need physical help. You can imagine, you're kind of late to this party, how upset you would be as you pull up and you're hoping to get next to Jesus and, and, and touch him or be touched by him. And just as you get there, he, he gets in a boat and goes out a ways so that you can't get close to him. You've walked all the way from Idumea and now he's in a boat. Distancing himself from you after you walked all this way with all of this hope. Well, what's he doing out there? Well, because he wants to be able to talk to them, speak to them about another level of problem that they have. Verse 9, he told the disciples, get a boat ready. Because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that he had, who had diseases, and they pressed around him to touch him. Now, at the beginning of the next chapter, Mark 4, we'll read this about why the boat, or why boats were used like this by Jesus. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it in the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them. He was teaching them many things. Uh, Teaching them many things. The opening song we sang this morning, Psalm 62, uh, touches on one of the psalmists' famous, most often used, metaphors, right, that our lives are like a breath, a mere breath, we're gone. It's good to remember, almost none of the people that Jesus healed made it to the end of the century. You know, especially in the first century, didn't live that long. 
He healed them, and they died again. That's how it goes. We all die sooner or later. Um, uh, A grandfather who really tried to keep his distance from sick, dying people thought maybe if you stay away from them, you'll just keep going on. Well, that's just a psychological trick you play on yourself. We're all going to be dying people. And the psalmist says, and you're all going to be dying people sooner than you think. And so that's another, that's a bigger problem than disease. Death. Death. For sinners to die is a big, big problem. Big problem. And Jesus talks about that problem. Talks about that problem. He summarized his message that way enough that his disciples once spoke that back to him, Peter in particular. You remember, just like here, the beginning of John chapter 6, big crowd is around Jesus. He amazes them. He feeds 5,000 men with a boy's lunch plus women and children. And, and by the end of that chapter, by the end of that chapter, the vast majority of people who were apparently interested in Jesus are given up on him because he said too many offensive things and they're done with all of that and they're washing their hands of him and they're going away. And in the midst of that happening, Jesus turns to the 12 and says, do you want to go away as well? And then Peter gives that famous response. Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, you would never know it by paying attention to popular messaging in America. But there is not a person you know or that you have ever known who doesn't have eternal problems. They've got eternal trouble. We never mention eternal trouble, ever. Never. It's never on television. It's never in the news. Nobody ever is seen as dealing with eternal trouble. But if you open the Bible, you're told again and again, everybody's dealing with eternal trouble. The kind of life you need is eternal trouble conquering life. Referred to in the New Testament as eternal life. And you get that life through faith in words. And Peter summarizes what he's been taught by Jesus about this gospel message over the months, a couple of years. Where would we go? You and you alone, as far as I know. The key to the words of eternal life, you You're the one that has the right understanding of the Old Testament. You're the one who tells us how you're the fulfillment of it. You're the one. You're the one. Psalm 16, verse 11. The psalm closes out summarizing. This is how it's always been. You make known to me the path of life through words. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore eternal life Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman again about his words using the metaphor of his words like water says this whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again the water that I will give him will spring up like a well of water into eternal life people are in eternal trouble and they don't know it. They don't know it. And they're unlikely to be told that they're in eternal trouble. Somewhere in the small, smallest 1% of all public messaging 
has that little tidbit in it. 99 point whatever percent of public messaging implies as to eternity. Come on. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to think about. Be serious. No, no serious thinking person. That's how we talk. That's what our public discourse sounds like. What a deceptive place we live. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And how it is so is hinted at in our third point, third and finally. People coming to Jesus come in a spiritual and not a secular world. Uh, Notice the presuppositions of verse 11 and 12. They're not American academic presuppositions about reality, to use philosophical terminology. These are not American pop metaphysical presuppositions here. Evil spirits, suddenly, just evil spirits. Spiritual realm, front and center. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down and cried out, you're the son of God. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they cried out, they fell down and cried out, you are the son of God. In the biblical worldview, the material realm owes its existence to the immaterial realm. The part of reality that you can study by means of the scientific method owes its existence to the part of the reality that you can't study by means of the scientific method. That's the biblical worldview. That the physical owes its existence to the spiritual. That the visible owes its existence to the invisible. Remember how the author of Hebrews put that in Hebrews 11.3. He said... that we know that the things that are visible were made by the things that aren't. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That's not a word that was written down. That was a word that was spoken, so you couldn't see it. By the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. But the invisible God spoke an invisible word, and a universe was there. That's, that's the Genesis account that he's recounting in a single verse. By faith, this is how reality works. This is what reality is grounded in. Now, our official position is this. There's accidental physicality. And at the highest level of the accidental physicality is us. And one of the malfunctions within the sort of atoms rolling around in our heads is that we invent an invisible unseen world and talk about it. So that the invisible unseen world is the imaginative production of the random physical movements in the brains of those furthest along in the evolutionary plane. So that's where the unseen world comes from. It's a myth. Uh, we, unfortunately, still at the high level of our advancement as homo sapiens, are myth-makers. And, and, that, and so that's why all of this God business and... Okay, you're going to choose between those. 
You choose between those. See, over and over again, just think of the, what, what we hear all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. Uh, just follow the science, 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 which assumes, which assumes atheistic dialectical materialism. All there is, the universe is all there is or ever was or ever will be. So all you got is follow the science. There's nothing beyond that. There's just physicality. Just follow the science. Just follow the science. Just follow the science. Just follow the science. Just assume. Just assume. There's nothing. There's nothing but dying matter. Accidental dying matter. There's nothing but that. Mark doesn't assume that. Mark doesn't assume that. In fact, he assumes that the spiritual realm is more fundamental and there's an evil element to the spiritual realm and here we run into it. And here's where the, the, the thing turns relatively shocking, right? Because these evil spirits know exactly who Jesus is. You are the Son of God. They know. They know. Why they say it out loud? Well, commentators speculate back and forth, don't know. Everybody makes a good case in my uh, going one way or the other. But they say it right out loud. That's just on the surface thing. You are the Son of God. The average American isn't so sure. Now think about what that means. Unclean spirits, they know exactly who Jesus is. The average American, the average person in the world, they're not so sure. The average American is blinder than unclean spirits. I think they've helped us get that blind. But the average American is blinder than an unclean spirit as to Jesus. They know who he is. They also know that he's no help to them. They know who he is. The average American doesn't know who he is. Now, here's the real question, though. Do you, as somebody who's shown up to church on Sunday morning, do you know who he is? Do you live as if you know who he is? Did you live this past week with Jesus as your Lord? He is the Lord of all. He is the all-powerful Christ. We get to the end of this story, and we're supposed to say as, as disciples, we know that. Jesus is the Lord. You are the Son of God. No one like you. No one so important as you. No one so worthy of allegiance as you. No one. And then we look around. How could everybody? This is a spiritual realm. And spiritual deception is everywhere. And it's incredibly potent. And if you see it differently, it's not because you were smart. Not because you were excessively insightful. If you recognize who Jesus is, it's because you were rescued, enlightened, saved, born from above. That's the only reason. How thankful we should be, how confident we should be in the Lord Jesus Christ. He can do anything. And when we find ourselves in trouble, he's where to go. I don't know what he will do. You don't know what he will do. But as believers, we are both to be utterly certain in what he can do, which is anything that he pleases. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of having something like Mark's gospel. The power of your spirit moving a man to write your words after you to tell us about how to know and trust and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, those who are here today who know you, rest in you, I pray that you'd strengthen our sense of that. That the wonder, the wonder that the psalmist speaks about in Psalm 105, that we meditate on your wonders, among those wonders, is the wonder that we should have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him, and in love to be predestined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Oh, Lord, may we meditate on a, on a wonder like that and stand amazed at where we are in the midst of whatever trouble we have, and we often have heartbreaking trouble. But Lord, I pray for those here today who really probably sense that the biggest trouble they have is related to disease or finances or politics. And that's never the case. The biggest trouble is always in relation to you and sin and the wages of sin, which is death. And their great need, the ultimate need, is that they would come to embrace by faith the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, lead people there. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.